in our sermon series on the book of Acts, we have been traveling with Paul as he and several companions bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world beyond Jerusalem. In the past three weeks, we have found him in Ephesus, which is modern-day Izmir, Turkey, a good 650 miles from Jerusalem as the crow flies. But Paul wasn't a crow and couldn't fly. He traveled on foot and by ship, which makes 650 miles a long way from home. And everywhere he went, the gospel, and by extension Paul, received mixed reviews. There were some ready to receive the gospel, and there were some who were opposed, even violently. It offended or threatened them, and so they shot the messenger, or in Paul's case, stoned him. In our story this morning, we read about the latter, a group of people opposed to the gospel. The reason they stand in opposition to the gospel is because the gospel comes with a high price tag. It demands all of you, and it leaves no leaf in your life unturned. You cannot do anything to qualify for the gospel, for it is the gospel of grace that we preach. But it is a costly grace. The gospel says that you deserve wrath and judgment for not just the things you do, but for who you are. The things you do are just what naturally and freely flow out of your nature. It's our nature that is corrupt. And every human being is born guilty before God because of it. So we need not just forgiveness, but a new nature. And the gospel says that Jesus Christ gives you both. Freely, unmerited, graciously he gives. Jesus restores the natures of those who believe in him so that out of our new nature may freely flow behavior that is glorifying to God. We may sin still, but it's no longer because we have to, but because we foolishly choose to. And because God is a just God and cannot let the guilty go unpunished, Jesus also took the wrath and judgment we deserve for the sin we have committed and will commit. But in Jesus, the justice of God was satisfied and there is no more fear of judgment for the one who loves and trusts Jesus. Forgiveness and restoration was extended to the guilty while condemnation was heaped upon the innocent one. It sounds unjust, but what makes it just is that Jesus offered himself up for us out of love. He was not forced into anything. He volunteered himself. He freely gave himself for a people utterly undeserving of his kindness. And so every Christian is saved by grace alone. But it is a costly grace, because the love of Jesus demands a response. Jesus has purchased you with his grace, and you are obligated to respond to his grace with obedience. In the gospel, obedience does not precede grace, but proceeds from it. And you can hear this in the lyrics of the pastor Robert Robinson, who in 1757 wrote, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And in our passage this morning, we see that the gospel of grace even comes with economic demands. Demands on the ways Christians make money or do business. Ephesus was an important coastal city in the Greco-Roman world. And one of the major attractions of that ancient city was the temple of the goddess Artemis. She was named Artemis, one scholar points out, because she made people Artemis, that is, safe and sound. This mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto was associated with health and help of various kinds and was worshipped because of her lordship over supernatural powers. You may know her better by the Roman name Diana, 
But whether you call her Artemis or Diana, there is no disagreement over her influence in the Greco-Roman world in general, and in Ephesus in particular. She was, of all the Greek gods, perhaps the most popular. There were 33 shrines built to facilitate her worship, but the temple in Ephesus was far and away the largest and most impressive of them all. In fact, it was the largest building in the Greek world. It was about one and a half football fields in length and about one and a half football fields in width. And holding up the tremendous weight of the roof were ornate pillars which rose 60 feet into the air. It was a sight to behold. In fact, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as you can imagine, this temple brought a huge amount of income into Ephesus. All sorts of industry was built up around the temple, and it was by far the largest employer in that city. One thought of Ephesus, and they thought of Artemis. It's kind of like Bentonville and Walmart. Artemis was central to the Ephesian identity. One scholar writes that there was no other Greco-Roman metropolis in the empire whose body, soul, and spirit could so belong to a particular deity as did Ephesus to her patron goddess Artemis. There was a special bond between Artemis and the Ephesians. She was called the founder and guide of the city, and her name and image were found on coins and official documents. Moreover, she was regarded as protector of the city's fortifications and general welfare. And along came Paul, and he threatened Artemis. And threatening Artemis, he threatened her temple. And threatening her temple, he threatened the wallets of the Ephesians. And threatening the wallets of the Ephesians, he threatened the economic stability of that city. So Paul had to go. He threatened Artemis by preaching what Demetrius the silversmith quoted in verse 26. That gods made with hands are not really gods. And the scary part for Ephesus was that people were listening to Paul. And not only listening to him, but believing him and then acting on that belief. We read at the end of our passage last week that there were a number of Ephesians who became Christians because of Paul's preaching and turning from the occult, turning from their magical practices, they burned their books with their magic spells and incantations contained in them at great loss to themselves. And the same was happening with Artemis. People were no longer buying the miniature statues of Artemis and her temple that were sold in and around the complex. And the craftsmen felt it where it hurts the most, their pockets. And Demetrius was one of those men, and he made no bones about it. He gathered together the craftsmen in that city, and in verse 25, he opens his speech with his greatest concern, the thing he feels the most. Feels the most. Men... You know that from this business, we have our wealth. And with that opening statement, he captured the attention of the craftsmen and proceeded to whip them into a furor and frenzy. Later in his speech in verse 27, he feigned concern about the worship of Artemis, but even John Chrysostom calls their bluff. They did not fear that their religion was in danger, but that their skills might no longer have a market. It was all about money for them. Paul had touched what they loved, and they were striking back. Artemis was not their idol, money was. Artemis was merely the means by which they fed their insatiable greed and built up their false security in this world. And so they incited a riot and led crowds in chanting, Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians! 
And Luke humorously reports that most of the people swept up into the riots were confused. And although they were chanting, they were not necessarily chanting the same thing. And most of them, Luke says in verse 32, did not even know why they were there. They were angry because they were told to be angry. And they were ever so ready to oblige. They took pleasure in the shouting and blocked their ears to anyone who wanted to speak to them. Alexander stood up to address the mob, and they shouted him down. Why? Merely because he was a man of a different religious, racial, and political stripe than they were. And they knew he was only going to contradict or challenge them. Their eyes told them all that they needed to hear. Ears were unnecessary. And this dynamic gives us a a glimpse at the condition of the human heart. Jesus comes to us clothed in all his grace and truth, and he demands that anyone who wants to truly live must first die to themselves. Anyone who wants to be first must be last. Anyone who wants to be exalted must first humble themselves. Anyone who wants to be rich must not allow money to have any hold on them. They must give it away in this life in order to inherit the riches of a new heavens and a new earth. Anyone who wants to be full must first be emptied. Jesus comes and he draws close to you and he puts his finger on that thing that you love more than him and he tells you, it must decrease, I must increase. And because it's something we love, we immediately react. Our our idols are only torn from us with much accompanying protest. There's a saying in the world of reporting that if you want to get to the bottom of some scandal, then all you have to do is follow the money, right? Mm -hmm. The money will be your guide. And in a similar way, if you want to expose what in your life you are holding too closely, then all you have to do is follow the anger. Anger will expose what you love too much. Great are my dreams, right? Great is my autonomy. Great is my beauty, my child. Great is my career, my reputation, my belongings, my intelligence. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We refuse to listen and hear nothing over our loud declaration of allegiances to our loves. But Jesus speaks peace to our souls and he settles our spirits just as he settled the waves and winds on the Sea of Galilee. Yes, he says, they're great, but I'm greater. They must decrease. I must increase. And again, we learn about the brokenness of humanity in the fervor of the crowds whipped into a frenzy by the angry silversmiths. They did not even know what cause they were supporting. They were just shouting. They didn't even know why they were there. Twice, Luke calls them confused. Neither did they know how or why they had gotten involved. But such is the insecurity of humanity, that we're always prepared to defend ourselves, even if we have to fight our battle by proxy. Indignation expressed on someone else's behalf can actually have nothing to do with the person afflicted and everything to do with yourself either your own anger with God or your desire to prove yourself virtuous in defending others. And so we have people who are unjustly angry, people who hastily rush to their defense, and everyone is shouting and no one is listening to what is being said because at this point it doesn't even matter, it's chaos. And surprisingly, the town clerk a pagan man, an ardent supporter of Artemis, is the voice through whom God speaks to show us a better way. He encourages order. 
And he scolds the mob for being unreasonable and refusing to listen to either their captives or to one another. Let's go to court, he says, and let's hear the evidence. It's the invitation that God extends in the first chapter of Isaiah. Come, let us reason together. For truth is not advanced by violence. It does not bubble to the surface through scoffing or shouting. It does not come to light through blind allegiances covering for personal insecurities. Truth comes to light over the course of time through conversation that is genuine and generous. In Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is pictured like a bird hovering over the primordial chaotic waters. And out of these waters, God brought a world of order and beauty. God is a God of order and not of chaos. And that's true of conversation as well. Let each person hold what they believe with confidence and listen to each other, trusting that the Holy Spirit will bring truth to light, convicting people of error and bringing about faith and repentance. It's God alone who can make a person believe. And so we have the unique opportunity of time on our side in weighing the evidence before us in the case of the Apostle Paul versus the Silversmiths' Union. Paul's argument has been stated already. Gods made with hands are not really gods. And the town clerk, speaking on behalf of the silversmiths, offers his rebuttal in verse 35. Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? The town clerk is arguing that the statue of Artemis, which they worshipped in Ephesus, was actually not made with human hands but fell from heaven. Therefore, he argues, Paul is incorrect in asserting that the statue of Artemis is not really a god. She is. But if that is the case, then one would imagine that the statue of Artemis, the temple in which she lived, and the great city of Ephesus, which she protected, would never meet the fate that Demetrius was concerned about in verse 27. That the temple of the great great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, he fretted. And she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. If she were a god, then she could never be destroyed. But destroyed she was. The great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, no longer exists. There are remnants of stone and pillars, but the majesty is gone. And Artemis has gone with it. She did not survive the destruction, and today there are no longer any worshippers of Artemis. The shouts of, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, has fallen silent. Turns out Paul was right. Artemis was not really a god after all. But what about Paul's god? What about Jesus Christ? He was not made with human hands. In fact, he was not made at all. God the Son existed for all of eternity, and through the womb of the Virgin Mary, he came into the world. Jesus of Nazareth was fully human and yet fully God. He is the image of the invisible God. In fact, Psalm 2 is our Old Testament passage that Chip read for you earlier, and it tells the story of the coronation of God's king. The nations are raging and rebelling, but God sets his king up to rule over them all, and then he laughs at their revolution. But the word translated as set, as in, I have set my king on Zion, the word translated as set in English is pour in Hebrew. I have poured out my king on Zion, my holy hill. The sense is the same, but the imagery is different. 
For the word for poor is often used as someone making, melting metal to create a statue, an image of some kind. And God is saying that His King, Jesus Christ, is His image in the world. The Ephesians claimed that the statue of artists came to them from heaven, but she was just stone and crumbled along with her temple. But Jesus Christ really is God come down to us from heaven. Only He's not a statue of stone, but of flesh and blood as we are. Like us in every way except for sin. When you look at Him, you are looking at God. And if Jesus is God, then surely He must be held to the same standard and test to which we held Artemis. Can He be destroyed? And the answer is emphatically no. The Romans tried to destroy Him and even for three days thought that they had. But Jesus, after being crucified and buried, rose from the dead in a body. He defeated death and He now lives. And He's ascended ascended to the heavens where He's untouchable. And there are over two billion Christians who still worship Him today. In the heavens, He stands before God the Father with scars in His hands and feet. Scars that remind the Father, as if He needed reminding, of our forgiveness. And of Jesus' payment on our behalf. From the heavens, Jesus pours out grace upon those who believe in Him. And fills us with His Spirit as a promise of His love. And guarantee of our redemption and resurrection. He is the truth. He alone is the truth. And time will prove it to be so. But let us not forget as we wait that His grace is costly. He demands that we give up much in following Him. But the sacrifice of Christians for the sake of knowing Jesus only strengthens Jesus' claim to divinity, only strengthens His case. Who is He that men and women have preferred death to denying Jesus? Who is he that people hold loosely the things they love in order to cling to him? He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the the enduring image. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.